Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sitcom Club USA, in which we take a deep dive into a specific episode of a particular American sitcom as selected by our guest. I'm your host, George Grimwood, and our guest for this episode is Johnny Ellis, co-host of podcasts Are You Movie Mad? and Backstage at the Bluebird. And for the discussion, he has selected Christmas Party, episode 10 of season 2 of The Office. Johnny, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Excited to be talking about one of my favourite, well, my all-time favourite sitcom. American sitcom or generally across the board? I'd say sitcom across the board. This is the one that, until very recently, it was my go-to. I always have something on in the background to fall asleep to, and this was my go-to, was The Office. So it's sort of ingrained in my brain. For some reason recently, it's How I Met Your Mother. I don't know why I switched over. I just needed a bit of a change, I suppose. But for years, years, it was The Office constantly. And I was just like back and forth, you know, all the way through nine seasons. And it was mainly because I went, I went to see uh, The Woman in Black in theatre years ago. And it terrified me that much that I need something to fall asleep to. So it became your comfort zone viewing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It still is, yeah. <laughs> As a recording, I read today that the, I believe it's the pilot has been approved for... No, no, the the series has been done, I think. It's coming out uh, January 15th on Hulu, I believe. They they released the first trailer for it. That's what happened today. Yeah. And uh, the only name I recognised from How I Met Your Father was uh, Hilary Duff. Yeah, that's the only name I recognised too. But I believe it's the same director of, because the director, the um how my mother had the same director mainly throughout most of the show so i'm hoping it's still got the same feel to it but obviously it's been a while since that came out so times have changed a bit and i can't imagine there'll be a kind of barney character anymore so yeah it's very interesting to see where if that'll be if uh, how my father is going to be as innovative as uh, how i met your mother I'll be intrigued to see if they cross over at any point, as in if they make yeah. a little reference or if it turns out that so-and-so's character is so-and-so's cousin from How I Met Your Mother or maybe mixing it up a little bit, perhaps. But I, I, that could be argued as a little bit of a cheap thing. I, I, yeah. I always like that when they make a little nod in a spin-off. Yeah, I like that too, to be honest. Um, I've, I've recently started watching um, Everybody Loves Raymond uh, from the beginning because I never watched it. Like I used to watch it in the mornings on Channel 4 before school and whatnot, that and uh, King of Queens, but I never watched it all the way through. And I have um, I was looking into it and I found out that they, they cross over and I'm kind of, I'm very much looking forward to seeing, I think Ray turns up in a couple of episodes of uh, King of Queens. It's how they do the crossover. Because I think we've already seen Kevin, I was going to say Kevin Hart, not Kevin Hart. What's his name? Kevin? Kevin James? Yes. Kevin James has popped up in Raymond in the early seasons as a different character. Hmm. But yeah, apparently because they're the same studio and stuff, they they often crossed over. I remember there was a a lot of joy to be had from the Jeffersons turning up in an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All right, yeah. And then I think there was the famous one where it wasn't even a sitcom crossover, but it was Cheers and St. Elsewhere, I think. Um, Hospital drama. And (laughs) yeah, there's... And and then, of course, you get spin-offs like... You have Boy Meets World followed by Girl Meets World. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Girl Meets World. I've outgrown Boy. I outgrew Boy Meets World by about twenty five <laughs> years ago. But uh, whenever, yeah. well, however old I was at the time, Friends crossed over with ER, didn't it? Or was it just yes? Was uh yeah? Was it the same characters, or was it just the same actors playing different characters? But they were they happened to be doctors as well. I think Not they were sure. the same characters. Yeah. I yeah. Think... And I think they had to make a very strong point of them, you know, like you'll only encounter them once, despite the fact that, you know, these, both of these characters could arguably, in certain circumstances, be appropriate um, uh, fixtures on the show. And if if I remember rightly, isn't it Noah Wiley's character? Noah Wiley? Noah, I want to say Noah Huntley, but it's Noah Wiley, I think. Either way, Noah something. I think so. Yeah. Uh, So Noah's character sits and has a chat with Rachel and they have this comparison of careers and they do it quite well to establish why it won't work immediately because 
he says something like, oh, well, you work at a coffee shop, right? And it's like, well, for me, it's the same thing. It's like, well, if I see another cup of coffee. So and that's, and that, isn't that the case <laughs> where it's, yeah. where it's, he can't deal with even being in a relationship because he can't deal, look, deal with looking at even a human body. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I thought was quite good. But And speaking of um, crossovers that are unexpected, the first one that popped into my head when you mentioned it was um, New Girl and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Now, I haven't seen any of New Girl, and I am still working through Brooklyn Nine-Nine. No, there's just like one little scene where they, they have this weird crossover. I can't remember which one it happens in. I think it happens in both. But it's just weird seeing the two characters. It's um, Jake and Jess from New Girl. Is there a famous meme? Yeah, yeah. And she's like, uh, name one law. And he's... He says something like, don't kill people. She's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I had that on myself. <laughs> I know the meme, but I haven't seen the episode. And speaking of spin-offs, though, we also have the fact that The Office was originally, the American Office, of course, was originally meant to be an origin point for Parks and Recreation. And Rashida Jones did, of course, end up becoming a, a main character in the Parks and Recreation series. And I would have loved to have seen a genuine crossover between the two shows. I think that would have been incredible. Yeah, because I remember hearing it was going to be following Holly, or was it too early for Holly? I wonder. I think Holly was a little bit later after Rashida Jones's appearances. I think if they had collided those worlds, what do you feel would have been the two best characters to, to meet face-to-face? Ooh. Uh, one from The Office, one from Parks and Recreation. I think Dwight would be uh, the first point of call. To cross over with, I want to say Aziz Ansari's character, but I don't know why. <laughs> I think I think like if they were both put in a position where they had to track something down, they were forced together to. They've made a mistake collectively on a visit to the office or visit to the the office of Parks and Recreation, and they've made a mistake. I think they'd be forced to be in a car together, and they would they build on that dynamic of frustration. But then again, you might also have Dwight and Ron. Oh, yeah, that could be fun. I think Dwight would probably see Ron as a as a paternal character. Oh, yeah, yeah. It does actually also fall down as to when that would have, this what if, uh, as to when it would have happened in the progression of both series. Because what is such a great thing about these shows, both of these shows, is that the, the, the development of the characters, in certain ways, with certain characters, certainly, um... I mean, with The Office, you could argue that there are probably one or two characters that don't really progress in the same way that other characters get the opportunity to do so. I mean, even spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the complete US Office. It's all on Netflix currently, as far as I'm aware, and Amazon Prime. At the very end, up to that point, you think Kelly's finally moved on from Ryan. (laughs) Yeah. And then they run off together and dump the... I mean, rather aggressively just dump this baby. I'm sure... If, if a baby's dumped somewhere, someone can't just pick it up and go, that's mine now, which more or less is what happens in that episode. Yeah. It goes a little bit League of Gentlemen in, in, in certain macabre kind of expectations. I, it's, just a bit, it's a bit bizarre. Yeah, the, the, the final season, no one tends to really enjoy it apart from the final episode. But I, I, I find some real joys in the final, like seasons eight and nine. I think the fandom tends to kind of steer clear. And it's always the case of like, you know, people watch, rewatch the show and then end it in season seven and restart. And I just always go through it all because like if you don't go through season eight, especially you don't get the joy that is Robert California, who's so underappreciated. And also speaking of spinoffs, um, season nine had the backdoor pilot for the spinoff they were going to do for uh, Shroot Farms, which I'm kind of glad they didn't because it just didn't appeal to me. And I understood why they wanted to do it, you know, to keep the franchise going and keep one of the pop- most popular characters. But I just can't. I think it would have been like Joey for Friends. You know, it would have lasted a season or two, but it wouldn't have gained nearly as much traction. I genuinely feel that the Dwight spinoff had a lot of potential, but not on that network and not with the tone that was retained from the US office. I feel yeah. that... That because you have you have these great 
comedy actors and Michael Schur, of course, who wrote the episode we're going to discuss today as well as Mose. And then you've got James Urbaniak popping up perhaps as well, who's a brilliant character actor from, you know, voicing Dr. Venture in the Venture Brothers and turning up as the producer in Review with Forrest McNeil. Also, he plays Judy Klausner's partner in Difficult People. I think on a certain network, quirky becomes a different word and it becomes something that creates a tone that is successful depending on how it has been presented. But the trouble is, I think, and this is, this is I think, the, the big reason, maybe in the long term, why it was good that there wasn't a spinoff in the form of Parks and Recreation. And the reasoning behind not having a, a spinoff with Dwight's Farm is because when you have a series such as The Office, you really are having to bank on a lot of risks for that spin-off to be successful. And honestly, the only series that I can think that has banked on that successfully in the last 30 to 40 years, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but when it comes to American sitcoms, spin-off-wise, it's Frasier. Yeah, and Frasier and Cheers, those are two of the big ones that I've not got around to yet. I, I keep meaning to but it's Cheers first and then Fraser spins off from it, right? Yes, and it's a joy. It's a real cosy joy. And I think one big factor of Cheers, perhaps in contrast to the American office, is that with Cheers, you've got wooden panelling, you've got this walk-around bar area. There's something very warming about it. And they did carry this off across to a certain extent to Frasier in the sense of uh, Frasier announcing uh, without spoiling anything but but the fact that in his very in the very first episode you know you're introduced to the world of Frasier and he announces how about how his apartment which is a very central setting of the whole show and then he sort of says it's it's eclectic it's meant to be eclectic but it is it is so refined and perfected for his personality that whole universe is just a cozy experience and I say by contrast to the American office, because, of course, that there isn't uh, arguably with the exception, perhaps, of the manager's office, which does change slightly over time, certainly towards those later seasons. There isn't really a comfort zone area of the office to a point it's purposely clinical. Yeah, but that's what makes it comfort for me. You know, it's, it's never changing. I'll be intrigued to see what your thoughts are um, as to this particular episode, Christmas Party, Season 2, Episode 10, originally broadcast on December the 6th, 2005, written by Michael Sher, who also played Moe Schrute, directed by Charles McDougall, nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards, one for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Comedy Series, and one for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series, and at the time of its airing, the highest rated episode of the season, before we proceed, I should say that to our listeners that there are now many sources to learn more about The Office. There is The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s by Andy Green, which is the one I've read. I'm still waiting to read Welcome to Dunder Mifflin by Ben Silverman and Brian Baumgartner. And the ongoing podcast series of Office Ladies, hosted by Jenna Fisher, who plays Pam, and Angela Kinsey, who plays Angela. And as a recording, there have been 103 episodes uh, and counting yeah there's there's so much to uh to dig into at this point it's it's crazy and it's it seems it's only happened over the last couple of years that you know the, there's books and the podcasts have gained so much traction and like even Brian Baumgartner's uh podcast has it started off as a 12 episode thing but it's gone on and it's he's still doing it and it's just weird to have them both at the same time alongside office ladies um, I'm I'm quite far behind on Office Ladies, but I did I do love listening to episodes because you get so much information. Something I found a bit bizarre in the long term was the fact that the the Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s by Andy Green, is an oral history, and it came out before Welcome to Dunder Mifflin. Now I'm just bringing up the description of the uh, Welcome to Dunder Mifflin book because I feel that this is kind of a slight jab. Because the full title is Welcome to Dunder Mifflin: The Ultimate Oral History of the Office. So I'm wondering if if there was any friction once the Andy Green oral history came out. It seems strange to me that they felt compelled to release a follow-up book that was kind of let set the record straight and also make a really defiant kind of thing of, you know, this is the definitive oral history when The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sick of the 2000s by Andy Green is, <laughs> uh, is declared itself as an oral history, which actually does go into a lot of detail. And there's nothing particularly sacrilegious to the show or the people involved in, in that. So it's it's... It is 
slightly bizarre that they I don't I don't want to say erase the idea of the original book but it does seem odd that they've kind of then stamped over it and saying no this is the original this is the oral history yeah it seems odd to me I'll be intrigued to see what the difference is it feels like everyone kind of wants a piece of it you know wants a piece of the um the fandom to latch onto them instead of you know I I do wonder if there's any competition between the two podcasts as well because I yeah I was quite surprised when the the 12 episode thing was a start to finish kind of you know sort of behind the scenes stuff of uh, the writer strike and all this and they didn't they never really went into that too deeply on the office lately podcast because they always kind of focus on the episode itself so it made sense that you know these were two quite separate things and then Brian Baumgartner's one turned it turned into a, a full-time gig for him so I do wonder if there's uh, any competition between them and then they've got um can't remember who's it plays Stanley Hudson Leslie David Baker he had the thing he was doing a uh one of the GoFundMe kind of things where he was he was raising money to do his own spin-off with his character but it wasn't going to be his character because obviously he writes his shoes and it's just going to be called Uncle Stan or something. And it it just, that was, that felt like kind of bottom of the barrel stuff. But I'd still be kind of morbidly intrigued to see what happens. I, I can't imagine it's it's going to go off anywhere. When you get to a certain point like that, I do get the feeling it's, it always reminds me of that that bit in The Only Fools and Horses when when Rodney is working to to write a film he didn't ask for Delboy's opinion, but Delboy goes, there's a rhino loose in the city. And it's always that kind of thing where it's like this pitch that no one asked for, that no one really thought about, that just exists as a concept somewhere. Yeah, I would be, I'd be morbidly fascinated to see Uncle Stan is living in Miami. What was the, there was a, like this premise where it was like he runs a boat shop or something? Yeah, I think it was something like that. And it was, when was it? It was like a couple of years ago that it's, he started talking about it. So I wonder, if anything is going to happen because I keep it's one of those things where every six months or so I'll, I'll kind of remember it in the back of my head and I'll be like oh I'll have to look up to see what's going on with that because obviously people have put money into it but then I imagine NBC surely have been trying to crack down hard on it who would legally be allowed to release it is the, yeah this is the big question and I mean it would probably have to be streaming regardless I mean probably these days you're probably looking at uh, as of recording, probably something lo- along the lines of Pluto TV. Yeah. Who, I don't know if they have the money, but they certainly were in a position when, um, on a completely separate topic, but in relation to the state of streaming television at the moment, as of recording ne- uh, a couple of weeks back, and Netflix uh, and Paramount couldn't come to a deal in regards to v- screening Star Trek Discovery, retracted the contract within a day or a couple of days before the first episode was meant to air on Netflix. And uh, thus um, the UK and Europe, and it, well, essentially outside of America, you, you, you couldn't see it. And there was a, uh, you couldn't see Discovery, the new series. And there was a big, big, massive pushback on that naturally. And uh, then they said, well, um, here's a deal. Uh, every Friday we're going to premiere a new episode of Discovery on Pluto TV, which isn't a particularly well-known streaming service in the UK, I don't think. I don't think it's the... It, it's certainly not, I would say, the first, second, third, fourth, or even fifth, or even tenth um, streaming service that anyone would think of. And yet, maybe that might be their breakthrough opportunity. It seems, it seems such an odd and specific choice uh, for Pluto TV. So maybe if, if, if there was ever going to be... Maybe there should just be a channel that is willing to just go all in on on vaguely unofficial spin-offs, and you know, we maybe maybe that means one day we could get uh, that spin-off of, about Robert California that will, will almost certainly never. Oh, happen. if only <laughs> he assumes a different identity when he leaves. So yeah, I'd like to think maybe this is actually like um, a prequel to the Blacklist <laughs> in some shape or form. So Christmas party. Now this is a it's the first of. Uh, tradition of Christmas episodes and and as it's this is your favorite sitcom uh, what led you to pick out Christmas Party as your favorite Christmas episode of The Office? I feel like it's the quintessential of all Christmas episodes it's the quintessential one that gives the best examples of the characters and the whole uh, Yankee swap idea just makes it all the more fun but also like just cringeworthy because just having them all sat around in a circle, it's such a simple premise of just them sat around, but like 
the way that the scene plays out just gets you know more and more awkward and brilliantly so um i'd imagine it's you said it's the highest rated of of the season now that makes total sense i wouldn't be surprised if it's the um highest rated christmas episode i feel like it's because i i was trying to find one of them that uh you know i think i feel like stuff like dwight christmas um in later seasons um are less looked back at less fondly and i was kind of trying to pick one that i could maybe fight for but in the end it just had to be this one because it's I, I feel like there's not enough love for the real real early stuff you know the first season especially you know i always tend to when i'm recommending a show to people i always say something you know you just you got to get through the first six episodes because obviously people wouldn't too keen on the first season because it's trying to be the uk version but there's still stuff to love and michael's character becomes less annoying as the show goes on but at this point in christmas party he's still just as annoying you know he's he's on the precipice of moving from annoying to kind of you understand him and you you're on his side you know i feel like especially in like season five and so but here he's he's still that very very annoying michael scott that you just couldn't imagine being your boss whereas later on he becomes the one where like it would be fun to have him as your boss because you could just watch him be him but i also love his just his whole awkwardness and grating persona in the early seasons and this this does it completely brilliantly with his uh decision to spend uh was it a hundred dollars on um on the ipod uh video video ipod i believe it's four hundred dollars yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suppose there's a bit of a mix of reasonings behind his expense. There's, there's the idea of the need to be liked, which is a, a valid validation, and I think is a big key word for Michael generally as a, as a character, uh, feeling validated, feeling acknowledged and heard, and feeling liked. And you know that he's liked. I mean, the fact that the cold open is a is a great starting point that sets the ambitions of Michael throughout the episode where they're trying to haul in a Christmas tree that's far too big for the office. And that more or less sets the tone of what's wrong because, you know, as soon as they, they hike it up, as we cut back from the uh, opening titles and they're having to slice, cut it down so that it just fits. And I think that that actually is intentional or otherwise. It's, that's quite a... Um, a good starting point for the rest of the tone of the episode and i think he feels guilty about firing devon yeah but doesn't really connect the dots between firing devon and getting the money yeah there is that great line where he's like maybe should I, I should call devon and let him know that <laughs> me firing him got me richer like <laughs> i was really hoping you'd we'd get to see that because it sounds like something he would totally do and not even think about like that this is the wrong thing to do. Devon would almost certainly just hang up with immediate effect. And it's a strange evolution in this episode on its own because Michael has different personas, certainly in those earlier series. And this is, in this episode, it's no filter, Michael. The only times he actually gets into any trouble is when he just can't stop himself from saying something. he, He sits with Jim at one point and reveals that his secret Santa was Ryan. And that that he or he's sorry that he is secret Santa to Ryan, and that then he mentions about the four hundred dollars later on. He he has no off button when it when it comes to his disdain of Phyllis's present. Oh yeah, he walks right out, and then he gives the um the line to the camera with uh what's it? This tells me I love you, <laughs> homemade oven mitts worth, and he's just not happy about it at all. Uh, yeah, there's that. Like I said, there's the whole thing of him wanting to be loved and wanting to show his love and and expect that amount of love back. So he's shown $400 worth of love to Ryan, and then he gets a home oven worth of love back. I was re-watching this today, and I, I was listing the order of things when it came to the gifts. And, you know, there's, there's actually technically there's three presents that are unaccounted for. Okay. So this is my description of what starts as Secret Santa and then evolves into Yankee Swap. So Toby got Angela and was going to give her a poster of babies playing saxophones, which was then taken by Kelly and then taken back by Angela. Yeah. Then you get Oscar getting Creed, gets him a shamrock keychain, which was eventually taken in the Yankee Swap by Jim. Yeah. 
Kevin got himself, and which was a foot bath. Yeah. Then you get the complicated one of Jim getting Pam the personal teapot, which was taken by Meredith, then taken by Oscar, then taken by Dwight, then eventually taken back by Pam. Then you get Michael getting Ryan, $400 iPod, which was taken by Pam, by Oscar, by Kelly, then taken by Pam, and then in the end taken back by Dwight, or traded with Dwight. Yeah. Kelly got Oscar a shower radio. We don't see where that ends up. Creed got Jim a jacket from his closet. We don't see where that ends up, unless there is a visual part that I missed. Phyllis got Michael a knitted oven mitt, which was then taken by Meredith. I don't know if it went any further than that. And Stanley got Kelly, which was a personalised nameplate for her desk, which was taken by Ryan. I assume that eventually ended up back to the right person. But there are three gifts that we don't figure out who they were. So we know that Dwight was giving someone paintball lessons. Unless Michael got two gifts. Well, I've got the um, Dunderpedia, uh, the office wiki up. And it's telling me here that Dwight had Phyllis, and that's who the paintball and paintball lessons were intended for. Apparently, this is from deleted scenes, which I, I didn't get around to watching. But I tell you one thing, I it must have been deleted scene, but it's something I remember completely from watching the episode umpteen times. And it, maybe it's not a deleted scene, but like maybe part of one of the extended, you know, they do the extended episodes sometimes. I think Netflix US maybe has the extended episodes on it because in the extended episode when we see Dwight with the paintballs he's shooting a poster of the 40 year old version which is mostly covered up with paint but then re-watching it on uh, Netflix UK there was no you saw the scene but it wasn't it was clearly not a poster yes I believe that was a blooper the kind of blooper reels that you'd you'd look up on uh, on on YouTube and just invest in if you're having a rough day it's it uh, those and the it's always in always sunny in Philadelphia blooper reels generally are are uh, always a always a joy just to revisit occasionally and um yes it was it, i remember that as well because uh, he refers to steve carell by name and in the in the blooper when he's shooting at the the 40 year old virgin poster and yeah i remember seeing the full blooper where he, he mentions steve by name and talks about how he thinks he's such a big shot now and all that but i'm sure they feature that bit of that in an extended episode or something you know it's, it's only like a, a couple of seconds as opposed to the full blooper scene if you call it that but yeah i just i seem to really recall uh seeing it in an actual episode and just seeing the poster but it's like it's mostly covered up but if you know what it is you'd be able to see it you know i might be wrong because I've, I've watched so much of the office like it all blends into one at this point oh for sure i mean i i'm i mean i keep debating about whether to get the blu-ray set or not because i'm mm. wondering if that would be if there's any additional benefit to that but if i'm not mistaken there is a slight a vague maternal bond between Phyllis and other, certainly Erin later down the line. Oh, yeah. I kind of have a memory, because there's so much of the American office, a memory of both Phyllis and Dwight bonding or, or kind of a mutual respect somewhere down the line. There's the moment where uh, after the Michael Scott paper company, when he's used in the office still as a um, sort of dance party spot and Phyllis cracks her back and then Dwight gives her a massage and stuff. And they, I think that's... Yeah, that's one of the moments, definitely, where they become kind of friends. <laughs> I think that's the episode as a recording of Office Ladies, which they're reviewing. Oh, uh, right. The most recent one out, yeah. Oh, wow, they've gone far since I last listened. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Maybe they decided to pull back on that. Maybe that was something they were going to explore. But the fact that if Phyllis uh, was officially the person who was meant to get the, give the paintball lessons to, I think in the Talking head section when Dwight is talking about the cost of the paintball lessons he says it's something like two grand three grand and it makes you wonder then that if he would have known that phyllis was his secret santa so i don't know there's just something a little bit unexplored there perhaps which uh, maybe perhaps they abandoned but it's something or maybe it was just his idea of well surely everyone would think this is awesome because i think it's awesome Anyone who gets this should appreciate me, or more to the point, appreciate me because I am the assistant manager. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore can spend as much money as the manager, perhaps. Mm. But for him, he had no specific aim point. He didn't have a Ryan. So he just said, well, whoever gets it should, you know, will respect me, yeah. kind of thing. But then you could also argue with Dwight logic that that maybe for him, it's like he they could have, they could have gone down the line of, ah, well, I orchestrated the whole thing or... 
there isn't one as far as I'm aware, but there could have been a deleted scene where he you could have seen him manipulating what to get Michael and that this was his plan <laughs> all along or there's there's various ways it could go. I mean, that's what that's one of the best things about Dwight. He is not in the simplicity of the character in comparison to, say, Dougal from Father Ted, but he is the he's the wild card in comparison to, say, the likes of Dougal from Father Ted or Charlie from It's Always Sunny, where almost anything is possible yeah. as to their logic or lack thereof. But there are two other ones unaccounted for. A book of short stories, which was eventually taken by Kelly, which I feel would have been for Stanley. I could be wrong. And there is a set of four shot glasses. We don't know, again, like the short stories. We don't know who these came from, but it was received by Phyllis. And I must, I believe that was definitely meant for Meredith. And they are later used by them all. No, nope, I've got it here. Um, so book of short stories was from Ryan to Toby. And the final recipient is Toby, according to these deleted scenes. And the uh, the shot glasses uh, from Cancun, apparently, are from Meredith to Dwight. So again, it's another, but we don't know who, who gets them in the end. But it's another one of those things of like, well, I'd like these, so someone else would. Maybe Meredith had too many shot glasses. <laughs> yeah, or... that too, yeah. It would time with her talking head later on in the episode where she says that she's only, she's got a New Year resolution to just stop drinking in the week. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's like, I'd, I'd need less glasses, which then ultimately get used. My point being about going through all of those is to really demonstrate that what's such a clever way of demonstrating not just the expectations of the characters, but the perspectives of the characters to each other is through the gifts they give to each other. For example, when Toby gets Angela, he knows exactly what to get her because Toby is a very observant person he's in the background he's watching other people all the time so it would make perfect sense that he got angela whereas oscar getting creed and he makes a point of saying i don't i don't know anything about creed and we know instantly that that makes total sense so i mean is there any particular character that that you think comes out aside from michael is there any character that comes out better and comes out and any character that comes out worse in this episode through their behavior Pam comes out better in terms of ending up with the teapot and do, you know, because I, I, you do feel as the episode goes on, when she takes the iPod, iPod, she is completely ignorant of Jim. And so by the end, when she's kind of taken it back, there's something about that where it's just like, it's nice, you know, it's the teapot is a, is a great kind of thing to not really progress the, the love story, but just, uh, a nice addition to the love story between Jim and Pam. It's just such such a perfect item with all these little bits, and you, you don't even get everything explained in there. You know, he takes out a cassette at one point, and there's, you know, you don't hear anything about what's on the cassette, why he's put the cassette in there. There's just some great things in there that kind of not everything's explained, and I love that. In terms of others that come across worse or better no one really comes to mind how about you i have a thought about jim because he comes off actually quite passive aggressive when pam goes for the ipod because she doesn't know any better about the teapot yeah initially and he's quite uh, there's one point where he's like are you sure i don't want the teapot because you know i got it for you specifically and then there is a little bit of deception on both sides at the end because you've got him sneakily taking back the letter when she's not looking yeah but her reasoning behind taking back the teapot is because she's sitting there with Roy looking at the iPod. There's only two scenes with her and Roy in this episode, essentially. And one, The first one is they're going through the iPod and Roy goes, oh, well, this will save me a lot of money. Yeah. And that's her, her reaction to that is, oh, he's not going to, you know, like, oh, he's going to get me a sweater. Mm. And then he, she's standing next to Roy and Daryl in the kitchen. Yeah. And... They're talking about sports and she's not really involved with the conversation and she looks through the window and I think she sees Jim there as well, looking a bit disheveled. Yeah. And then next thing you know, she tells Jim that she traded the iPod for the teapot, which of course is a very grand gesture. Mm. But then I was thinking, what happens next with her and Roy? Because Roy knows that she has the iPod in the trade. Not that it's her right or duty to, but based on the, in any capacity, but based on their relationship that we've experienced and the fact that he's already stated that he was going to get her a sweater and that he didn't have enough money to get an iPod anyway. And also, I, I don't feel from their dialogue that 
an iPod was necessarily even on the table. It was more of a case of, oh, well, since you've got one, you know, that's great because that saves me money having to get one at some point. It didn't seem like it was like an, like their priority. Yeah. It does seem slightly odd where it's like, well, I'm going to make this statement of going, actually, I took the teapot. Because Roy already comes off as there's a tension bubbling anyway. Surely he would question, one, where the iPod went, and and two, where this teapot came from. I just, I, I would have liked to have seen the conversation between her and Roy, because Roy, certainly we know retrospectively, has a, a, a particularly violent side. And yes, it's great for her to see, to see for her to, to make that decision and to, and sort of say, well, you know, if you're just going to get me a sweater, who needs the iPod anyway? It, there's something a little bit off about it. I don't know. It either makes her come off as where it's kind of like, well, this was expensive, but you're not getting it for me. I got it for free. I want you to get it for me. In my head, I think she she basically sacrificed. She knew she wasn't going to get an iPod from him now, if she even was in the first place. Um, so she sacrifices it so that she can spend more time with Jim and kind of bond with him more. And I feel like she feels sort of safe in the knowledge that Roy probably won't notice. Like he wouldn't notice that she suddenly got a teapot and he wouldn't notice that the iPod has gone. And if if he ever did, she'd just be like, oh, you know, I left it behind at, at home. That's why I don't have it today. You know, she could probably get away with it because I think that's how I feel Roy is sort of portrayed throughout the show when he's with Pam is that he doesn't really take notice of Pam, whereas Jim does, you know? That makes sense. I suppose you could argue that, I mean, obviously she didn't get the letter in the end, but certainly with that photo of, I assume a, a real photo of young John Krasinski uh, looking a, a little bit like Popeye, in my personal opinion, but um, the character of Pam must just have that as a bookmark on a book, in a book that, one, she, she knows that Roy will never reach, yeah. and, and two, probably just on her desk in the office or in her drawer in the office. Yeah, I I think what made me question the logistics behind it was the fact that she goes, I think I made the right choice. And it was, yeah, you, you made the right choice eventually. Yeah. It wasn't a case of you made the right choice. It was a case of you got the iPod, you found out your partner wasn't going to get you an iPod. And so you went for the original present that was going to be given to you to make a point, ultimately. I mean, I, I mean maybe I'm being cynical, but, you know, Christmas brings that out of me. <laughs> But yeah, you could also see it as like, you know, when she's uh, in the in the kitchen area with Roy and Daryl and she's just like bored out of her head. And maybe she maybe her if you look at it in the cynical way, you could say, well, she only took the teapot so that she could get away from those two and have an excuse to go and see Jim and be like, oh, hey, look, I've I've got a teapot now. Let's bond over this, you know. She was bored and she wanted some attention and she should get that attention from Jim, maybe. I would say that's that's almost certainly the case, and especially in relation to what seems like a little bit of a white lie she gives to Jim about the reasoning going, oh, well, he's meant to be getting me one anyway. Yeah. And you're like, he's not going to get you one. Yeah. And then Jim taking the letter back behind her back and both of their reasonings for telling a little or being a little bit deceptive to each other are arguably fair in their relationship early on. Well, one of the discussions that we've had in, in recent episodes is about the will-they-won't-they they characters, both in Friends as well as... Uh, we used Frasier for reference. to uh, Tim Worthington and myself were talking about Frasier, about how there are two characters... Not Frasier, I'll say that much. I won't spoil it for you. But there are two characters. There's a very much a will-they-won't-they. They, and this isn't really a spoiler in the sense of it's inevitable in... Almost any classic sitcom across the board. Yeah. But eventually they do. Now, I was thinking, Jim and Pam, as a couple, in the long run, I'm wondering if someone who hadn't seen the UK version of The Office would go into the US version of The Office and perhaps still see it as a will-they-won't-they they situation, or would they have seen it as it's just inevitable and it's more about how we get there and when? Because as someone who had seen the UK Office... And you establish that Jim is Tim and Pam is Dawn. Yeah. That it, you know, it's going to happen eventually, but because the timeline is much longer because of 
how American sitcom works in comparison to UK sitcoms and Ricky Gervais's assertion of, you know, there should only ever be two seasons and so forth. That it's it's just about the journey. It's not about well the journey. The journey is the destination, and so forth. It's not it's not about will they, won't they. It's about they will. It's just about how they get there and when they get there. Uh, it's funny you mention that because I meant to say at the beginning uh, when we were talking about my love for the office is that I I have this theory that it depends which one you watch first over which one's your favorite because I I think if you start with the US office that's the one you lean towards and I started with the US office I never I didn't watch the UK one until much later and I can't remember if I knew the whole Tim and Dawn story like I knew of it but I don't know if I knew where it ended up but um yeah I I believe I went into the US office kind of going all right so this is the that Martin Freeman character and the other one this is the American version of that and and I think I did have the attitude going in of it's going to take longer and I'm kind of looking forward to the ride, you know? There's some gold in that when it comes to American sitcoms. It's the fact that we we can invest the time. Yeah. It's the same with, again, I mean, with, without spoiling it for you, but, you know, you have Cheers, you have Frasier, you have How I Met Your Mother, which the whole purpose of that is how he meets the mother. So yeah. it's it's you know it's going to happen, you just don't know when. But the, the will-they-won't-they aspect seems to be intrinsical across all of the sitcoms for the most part. Of course, there are those exceptions, and there are also exceptions of various American sitcoms that do it in a very different way. It's It's kind of translating to the same linear sense of evolution of the characters but not necessarily a will they won't they it's more of a this thing will happen between these two characters somehow you could take it the negative route that there are two characters who hate each other's guts and eventually there's going to be a conflict there's going to be a confrontation on a completely different note family guy for example even though they're not particularly um consistent or linear in terms of their narrative there are two episodes I can think of of Family Guy where they completely subvert the expectations of it being a comedy. They, because they allow those characters in those particular episodes to have their say, there's the, I believe, the 100th episode where Stewie and Brian get locked in a bank vault and they have this extremely honest and candid conversation about suicide and played straight it's played completely straight and it's it's surprisingly moving because the whole reason they got trapped in the vault was because brian needed to go there to get something and it turns out he wanted to get there get a gun so that he could kill himself it's jolting animation in particular certainly animated sitcoms has such a division between people whether it's the simpsons or the golden age of the simpsons or south park or f is for family or f for family or Big Mouth and Futurama and th- th- certain uh, animated series do touch upon serious moments and when it hits it hits and it, it works and the, the but the what I was thinking of in terms of a negative version uh, an inver- an inversion of a will they won't they is as far as I'm concerned a character confrontation is when Meg in an episode of Family Guy basically just calls the family out on on them treating her awfully I'm not saying it's like award-winning stuff or anything like that. I'm just saying it it has an impact because it subverts the expectations of, well, oh, actually, you know, they, they've chosen to make this choice of this character finally having a voice and they know exactly what they're doing. They've chosen this moment to do it. The only argument being, of course, in that particular scenario, certainly with animated over live-action sitcoms, she came to a conclusion in her mind at the end of that episode where it was essentially if i'm not their punch bag they won't function as a family how do you feel about in the long term the evolution of jim and pam's relationship in the sense of once the will they won't they was was confirmed and they got married and there's that lovely wedding episode it's an unofficial ending it's it's certainly closure in many respects to one narrative how do you feel post marriage that their how their story evolved i i had a real criticism as to uh season nine and i remember before season nine came out and they were talking about oh there's going to be trouble for jim and pam and it did feel a bit forced because they were so comfortable with each other they were they were just a a great couple uh once they got together and and you know like i said it didn't really progress after the the wedding they just sort of settled into it 
and it was great. And then when they did the season nine storyline of them having problems and going to marriage counselling and all that, it just felt really forced. And I wasn't, that's, that's one of the few things I'm not a huge fan of in the final couple of seasons. How did you feel about the Brian plot? I did love the idea and I was really excited. Again, this is another thing they kind of teased, I believe, um, as season nine was coming out that, you know, we're going to see for the first time, really, we're going to see the behind the scenes people because it's been the same people following them these nine years and we're going to get to explore that. And I was really looking forward to that. And then to find out that this is the only thing they're going to use that for was a bit because I was already annoyed enough about Jim and Pam having these fights because it, it just didn't feel like that they would have, you know, I feel like they were such a strong couple that they, they could have talked it through and it, it didn't feel right that Jim was um like keeping it hidden from Pam. I don't know. I just feel like they, they shared everything and anything. And he got so excited when she got into um art school and they were talking about like, oh, well, it's in New York. It's going to be a struggle. And he's like, no, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll, we'll, it'll be fine. And for him to kind of go into a shell and not say anything until so, so late in the game with his well, athlete just didn't feel right for the character. And so to add Brian, boom operator, to add him into the, um, into the mix as further conflict, I just, I wasn't a fan of that at all. And I was hoping to, to see more, I don't know, something more interesting and not so kind of, it's kind of stereotypical a bit, you know? Sure. I mean, I, I remember reading about this moment in time in the Andy Green oral history of The Office. And from what I can gather, apparently Brian being introduced was so hated as an idea from the audience. There was a lot of backlash that they, I think they did have a longer plan for him, but eventually they kind of did the thing. I mean, granted, a kind of less of a evolutionary point, but they kind of did the thing that they did with Hank Azaria's character in Friends. They, when they realized that it wasn't going to be a long-term plan, they make him a bit of a dick. And yeah, yeah, I, I got the impression that's kind of what they did with 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 him at the end. And yeah, it it's just it was one of those things where it's like if they tried to tear Pam and Jim apart in the long run, then there would have been backlash. But the trouble is as well is that I think it to makes total sense they would find something to cause a rift because they need to bring it back around to re-relish that enthusiasm and joy that people had in the beginning about them getting back together or get sorry getting together at all and so they needed to create some kind of antagonistic plot point purely a little bit like the christmas a christmas carol they needed a ghost of christmas future as it were not yeah. <laughs> not, not to cross uh, metaphors with the christmas episode a what could be scenario to say look you know if you're neglecting her this is where it's going to go yeah and I un totally understand that. But also, if you're not sitting there analysing the thing, which I know is what we're doing at this point, but if you're watching it and you're just watching it to kind of like, I'm comforted by the fact that these guys are together and they're a family. I'm comforted by this part of the story and, and so on. Seeing these guys just being driven apart in real time, not knowing where it's going to go, is going to be deeply stressful. So naturally, people are going to go, who's Brian the sound guy? I, what is this? I'm, you know, I'm furious. You know? And so the, the, and the writers knowing that this is the last, potentially the last season are probably going to panic a bit quicker because they don't want their, the legacy to be tarnished. Yeah. I will say for what it's worth, it does at least give us a great closure off. It's an excuse to, for Jim to finally give her the letter. That I think fans have been clamoring to find out, and we never do find out what the letter says. But for for us at least to see Pam get the letter and be able to read the letter, because it just kind of disappeared, but it was always there in in the ether. Somewhere. Arguably the longest Chekhov's gun. Yes, <laughs> I would say that they knew they were going to bring that back eventually, but maybe they just didn't know where they were going at that point, and they always had that as a backup plan. I feel like they always had the letter knowing that it would be there eventually, but but not necessarily knowing how it would eventually be brought back. If they ever had a riff, they could throw the letter in and be like, all right, this is what this is the glue. 
bringing us back around to the Christmas episode that we're discussing, I think as well is that there's some, I mean, we're talking about, we've been talking about various sitcom tropes, and I, I like the fact that Michael's perception of what a Christmas party sh- should be alludes to expectations of various tropes that you would see in a sitcom or a series. Party at the Playboy Mansion, or people drinking themselves to pass out and falling to, you know, off the rafters and everything else, and and all these illusions of what a Christmas party should be. And... I think perhaps the payoff of all of this, certainly for Michael as a redemption story, he makes it about the money at the beginning. And from then on, it's always about the money. It's $3,000 as a bonus. He feels bad. I think he subconsciously feels guilty about firing Devon. So, but he has kind of this strange, unalluded to, verbally unalluded to, but more or less heavily referenced crush or feelings for Ryan maybe paternal it's hard to say but yeah sort of making a point of keeping the tag on at four hundred dollars pretending like it's not you know that oh that was a mistake and yeah and that moment and um just before when uh when someone chucks the ipad ipods to ryan and he just does that no no yes and yeah i just love that little moment because it's like you know the whole point of secret santa you're not supposed to reveal until they open it and he he's so obvious about it and he's like you know pointing on the camera and like making it a big deal and then he, yeah like you said with the 400 dollar um tag on it and he just acts like oh was that still on it oh i don't know how that state there's a weird subversion of what he was planning all along really along along the way because Initially, yeah, you think, oh, he he wants to make a point that not only is he spending four hundred dollars, he's spending it on Ryan, and he want he almost wants validation specifically from Ryan, and Ryan's more just a little bit embarrassed. And then when he doesn't get something of the same value from Phyllis, the expectations change, where it's like, oh, actually, this wasn't about Ryan; it was about being, it was about money being spent on him, which I thought was kind of strange. I thought that was, it was an odd reaction because it's like well you don't know who you're going to get your present from and it's such a strange time for michael scott as a character in season two and as i say i think there are so many different variations of his character early on and the no filter michael is kind of almost the dumbest of michaels by dumbest i mean nonsensical because his behavior and reactions don't match up Initially, we're assuming that, oh, I wanted to spend some money on Ryan because I see Ryan as this person I'd put on a on a pedestal. And then he's the one who administers Yankee Swap. So he doesn't really care who gets the iPod at that point. Yeah, he's just uh, he's just in it to make as, as much fun as possible at that point. And that's his idea of fun. It's only fun up to the point where he doesn't get the validation, I think. And you know what? That's the thing. There's a massive, there is such a tiny little punchline for this whole episode and by tiny i don't mean undervalued i I mean in the sense of if this is what he got from the get-go none of this would have happened and that is validation when he's invited to join them for drinks at poor richards and then he goes christmas is great yeah it's like okay that's all it took yeah that's why we love him he's he's just a big kid at heart he just wants to be included yeah there is one moment not in this episode but later in the season it's when he's dating pam's mum and it's one of my favourite Michael Scott moments when they will find out in the uh, in the meeting room or conference room rather, and uh, and they're all sort of judging him, and he kind of just snaps and he says, "What is it about me that I can't be loved? Like, can I not just have happiness?" And then everyone kind of swaps over and they're like, "I'm happy for you, Michael. You know, you go get her." And it's just that that little scene with him kind of snapping and going, "You know, come on, give me a break." let me have this i'm happy it's heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time it warms my broken heart to make that dynamic more emphasized on feeling empathy for michael in that scenario that they had to make pam come off as mean and angry and and you know for partially rightly so and partially fair enough but pam yeah. does come off as really mean and really personal and vindictive Again, fair fair enough to a certain point, but they needed that contrast to basically call Pam out on her immaturity of going, well, if we didn't know how Michael was, 
from having that insight as an audience, then yeah, I mean, she that's the thing. Like, if we didn't and she was like that, and then we just see her as straight up mean. But I think also as an audience, we see aspects of Michael, certainly by that point, where we would kind of root for him in certain ways and and also the fact that we had we were privy to seeing how they got together pam's mum and michael so we know that it's not as simple as oh i've hooked up with your mum. it's more of a case of that he doesn't have the tact to and and also because yeah. he wants to be paternal and that's when no filter michael might come out i can't remember exactly but I know for a fact that at certain points, no filter Michael would have definitely been there to instigate. There's no scenario where Pam would have been happy. And you have yeah. to have Jim being the person who tells her because that's the only way the news can be broken gently, even though she kind of confronts Michael. And, and I think he's kind of embarrassed as well. At no point during that relationship is he doing anything vindictively. It's actually only when he finds out the significant age difference that he... he yeah resorts back to no filter michael and it's like ugh, you're you know you're you're an old woman um or whatever he's like he just he just treats her very poorly and yeah yeah and that's when he's unsympathetic and then you go back to signing with pam and i think that's really the key of any any kind of good writing from what i can gather certainly when it comes to sitcoms is if you're going to switch the empathy you need someone else in place to take that role whilst you're moving those those feelings around and i think with this particular episode uh, of the christmas party what i like about this as well and i'm pleased you, you picked this particular one as as a selection because it, it's such a pinpoint of it's a little bit end of term certainly with those month like those little montage scenes at the end during the actual christmas party we don't actually get to the christmas party in, until about five minutes towards the end and there's little character developments behavioral patterns of certain characters how you get Todd Backer turns up and then immediately he's passed out you know Michael giving Daryl the Santa hat eventually and having that little moment of clarification Kelly kissing Dwight yeah and then and also of course and this is the, the, the key bit the key transitional point I think from thinking about Pam and Jim and then thinking about Dwight and Angela is Dwight being very uncomfortable and reacting in such a way that he knows he's being seen and Angela going out and smashing the baubles as the episode goes on, she's just she's getting more and more angry about Michael, you know, completely screwing up the Christmas party, her plans. And then it ends with this crescendo of Kelly kissing Dwight right in front of her. And even though Dwight is, you know, very much against that idea and pushes her away, it just it causes her to explode. And it's a great little moment outside where she's smashing the balls is it season two where we discover angela and dwight are together at that point i feel like it is yeah i suppose it was wise of them to bring in that relationship early on at that point to really sort of say well because if i'm not mistaken it is the end of season two when they have jim and pam have the kiss yeah so they're kind of saying to the audience well yes this is going to happen it's just not going to be straightforward and perhaps saying that because of there's going to be complications on the way, here is something else you can invest in. And I hope that one day we can have a conversation about the relationship between Michael and Jan, because dinner party is often cited as a particular episode. But I mean, their whole, I mean, there's a whole season which is just so bleak. I mean, I think it's one of the best seasons of the whole series where it's just, but it's the, it's the one where it's the bankruptcy and he, just the whole thing with Jan just, just completely breaks down and it's the rawest of the seasons, I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you mentioned about other Christmas episodes. Is there any anyone in particular that you think perhaps contrasts to this, this one in terms of, or, or perhaps any reasons why there is an episode other than this one, a Christmas episode that isn't of the same quality or, or perhaps is diminished by perhaps overemphasizing or underemphasizing a certain aspect of the of the plot or the characters at that point? I think of them all, I would say um, either Christmas Wishes, uh, the season eight one, or Dwight Christmas, the season nine. Those two are the weakest for me, I'd say. I think I'm at the moment I'm leaning more towards Dwight Christmas. I'm not as keen on over the others. I'm not too sure why exactly. I, I just didn't like the... I think Dwight goes in too heavy with the 
with the Belshnikel stuff, it, it wasn't very entertaining to me. I will say, though, that it has a great moment now with because uh, they've edited that episode to take out the blackface because there's a moment where Oscar's uh, looking up Belshnikel to see if it's real and it turns out it is and he starts reading about the, um, is it Black Peter they call him? And uh, it's a character that they use and he wears blackface and Dwight's like, obviously I'm not going to do that. You know, we haven't, we're not completely in the past and he's just sort of, you see him texting by his side. And um, I think in the original episode, you cut to Nate who's actually wearing it. And then you see him kind of walking out of his car, getting the text and walking back to his car. But they've obviously cut that out now. And I think it, it caused a bit of like, you know, some fans were a bit annoyed at that. But honestly, I feel like it plays out so much better because you see Nate come into the episode later on and you just see a little tiny bit of black around his neck or something, but you don't see the full thing. And I just think that's it's it's a plays as a much better reference and a much better joke that way than to have to full on think and you don't really need it. It was more powerful this way. But yeah, um, as, as an episode as a whole, I, I'm not too keen on Dwight at Christmas. Um, there's, because uh, obviously at that point as well, Jim and Dwight are sort of more pally and it, and it, it worked as the show ended, but that was early on in the final season. And it was, um, I don't know, I just, I wanted more of the Jim and Dwight kind of rivalry that we all, love <laughs> which christmas episode was it where you have the fight between that's ongoing and it sort of starts off with a snowball here and there and then it, it really kind of escalates classy christmas because that's when holly comes back and uh and they yeah i think in the middle of classy christmas because it's two-parter is it jim smashes a window and then they get taken into the office with uh with holly and michael and holly's just like you guys were such good friends when I was last here. And they just had that little look at each other like, um, who's she talking to? I thought um, Holly was a fantastic uh, addition. Oh, yeah. Of all the relationships uh, in the series, I, I think they are, the. I think that's the best evolution of characters in terms of relationship there. We will have to have at some point a conversation about Andy, just as a whole conversation, just a whole episode. Because I, I felt so bad about how they... I personally feel that they gave Andy a real short straw by the end of the the, the series, and and I think it really sums up what was that quote at the very end where it's something like, "Oh, I wish we were, in, I wish we knew we were in the good times when we were in the good old times," or something like that. Yeah, and that, and, and that I think I think that 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 could arguably be quite a good quote to surmise certain aspects of the series and, and the way they treated certain characters towards the end who deserved a lot more. I feel like with Andy, it was uh, partly because of, uh, I think, was he doing um, Hangover 3? And so he didn't have as much time and they didn't know what else to do with him and they, they put him on a boat for months at, on end and it, it was the wrong, completely the wrong move. But Yeah, they, they just built up a lot of goodwill about the character and then kind of demolished it at the end and really kind of made him come across as something that he really wasn't at that point and they they, they div devolved the character i would say yeah the fact that for a fair amount of time it was like oh you know he's doing his um musical performance and oh actually he's quite good and, and all that everyone's supporting him and he's, he's not a bad singer and he's not a bad performer as a character um and that we're all supporting him and then he's suddenly uh a big fish in a little pond when he goes to do the tryouts at the on the reality talent show and they don't even he doesn't even get to the music part basically they just they just make him come off as unhinged his leaving the office is uh one of my favorite dwight angela moments because that's like you know the song is heartbreaking on its own and then you see angela you know she's just kind of at breaking point at this point in her character story and Dwight there was I think they're split up to this point and but Dwight still goes up to her and sort of sidles, sidles up to her and kind of whispers are you okay and it's it's just that those three little words that just you know they don't really go deeper into it in that scene but it's just it breaks my heart because it's he still cares for her even though there doesn't seem to be a future with them anymore He's cast aside at the end mm. of the the series. He he's not involved. He's not with 
Aaron, as far as I'm aware, and he's yeah. uh, not, he's, yeah, he's just, he's just kind of left to his own devices, um, teaching at Cornell. And it, yeah, it, it's, it's quite a sad ending for that character. Which other episodes of The Office, as a first timer, would you say, would you recommend Christmas or otherwise to someone who was going into it, but not too sure uh, ones that you could watch without necessarily following the the overall plot. Is there any particular episodes that you that you'd recommend to a first timer? Well, there is a Halloween episode that I am desperate for us to cover at some point in the future, which I think I mentioned to you before was the Halloween episode with Robert California. Yes, which I know is season eight, and you know it's it's season eight and nine are like I said very much looked down upon by the by the fans, but um, I feel like that. That would be on the top of my list for an episode to introduce someone to the show. I think the writing in that is superb, and I I cannot understate my love for Robert California as a character. Dinner Party as well is definitely, I know it's uh, such a um, cliche, but it is my favourite episode of the entire show. Other episodes, um, well, when we were talking about the, uh, the I think the whole uh, run of the Michael Scott Paper Company those episodes, which is like, what is it, about four or five episodes in, in a row? That's a great little arc to get through. Yeah, those would be my, my picks to, to start, try and win someone over as an Office fan. Well, I would say that, rest assured that we will definitely be revisiting episodes of The American Office in future, and indeed other episodes of other sitcoms that we've mentioned today. So I'd be very interested to for you to come back when you've perhaps watched a, a little bit of Frasier or indeed yes, some definitely. Cheers and yeah uh, keep me posted because uh, yeah I would uh, if, if you're going into it first time we uh, I would I would like to see kind of your live reactions if you if you message me and you say I've just watched this episode and this needs to be discussed yeah I think we can we can model it in a certain way where we wouldn't necessarily be spoiling it for you for we, we can refer to it in the present as opposed to ah well then what happens is and and, and the like well, Johnny, thank you very much for joining us for this uh, special Christmas episode of the Sitcom Club USA. Well, thanks for having me on. I'll, I'll always take the opportunity to wax local about my favourite comedy. Well, um, please do come back in future and rest assured that I'll keep a uh, Christmas spot reserved for you next year <laughs> as well for, uh, well, another Christmas episode of The Office or indeed one, if you've investigated Frasier and Cheers by then, there may be one of those. But um, mm. I'm sure we'll... Uh, have a few uh, episodes in between. In the meantime, uh, thanks once again to you, Johnny, and I wish you all a very happy festive season. Merry Christmas. Thanks once again to Johnny for joining us for this episode. Depending on when and where you're listening, we hope you will, are having, or had a fantastic festive period, and we wish you a happy new year when we will return in January for a new episode of the Sitcom Club USA. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Sitcom Club USA as part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. Hosted, produced and edited by George Grimwood with a special thanks to Martin Fenton. For further episodes of this show, as well as others such as Are You Movie Mad and Backstage at the Bluebird, as co-hosted by our guest this month, Johnny Ellis, alongside Andrew Jones, visit us at www.podnose.com. Listener.